It's a different world since Hodder Education last hosted 1,500 students and teachers at the Hazard Student Conference in 2019. But great news, they are extremely excited to announce that they are getting the band back together again in November 2022. Inspire your A-level geography students by bringing them along to hear from the expert panel, including Dr. Martin Degg, Professor Fiona Tweed and Professor David Pedley in Nottingham, Manchester and London on the 18th, 23rd and 25th of November. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash hazards hyphen 2022 to explore the full lineup and program as well as the chance to provisionally book your students' places. Hello there. Thanks for joining me today on another job pod. Today I'm joined by Professor Dinesh Mustafa, who's Professor in Critical Geography at the Department of Geography, King's College London. Welcome to Job Pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's 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 been absolutely fascinating reading some of the uh, the articles in preparation for this. Normally, I would start by asking a bit about you and about how you got to where you've got to in terms of geography, because I think that's interesting for students and for teachers. But I, I want to ask you something before that, really, because as I was reading your bio, it talks about critical geography. Now, a couple of years ago, I was involved in presenting a course for the GA funded by the DfE called Critical Thinking for Achievement. And it was it was about critical thinking, but it wasn't so much about critical geography. I, I don't think they're quite the same. Could I ask you to define critical geography for us? I think it's probably one of the hardest questions you can ask in the discipline. <laughs> what is critical geography? <laughs> and I've got it in first. <laughs> but, but, but equally, uh, once you are in a geography department anywhere in higher education within the United Kingdom or in the Anglo-American world or anywhere for that matter, you will often get uh, feedback from your uh, whoever is marking your paper, who's marking, whoever is looking at your dissertation or your thesis or what have you, you're not taking, you're not being critical enough, you're not taking a critical approach, or please critically evaluate the claim, such and such and such. And students often get exasperated by that, by that comment. What does critical mean? Do you want me to be that curmudgeonish person who hates everything, dislikes everything, rubbishes everything, and that's what critical means? Because in a colloquial sense, that's what critical indeed means. Uh, there are formal definitions or, or, or framings of what critical is, and I'll just get to that in a minute. But uh, as an undergraduate, I dabbled in philosophy and one of the first philosophers, and I think one of the canonical philosophers, uh, certainly in what we call so-called Western uh, knowledge of philosophical tradition is, is Plato, right? And you take a module in introduction to politics or introduction to philosophy anywhere in this country, the first book you read is The Republic. And one of the first claims that, and which has become the foundations of what is understood to be the canonical principle of knowledge is that unexamined life is not worth living. That was the basic claim that uh, Socrates went on. And the character Socrates, eventually, which was probably the first critical philosopher because he actually hanged for not believing in the gods of the city and corrupting the youth of the city. Now, at the time, perhaps the term critical did not exist and maybe it does exist in Greek. I'm not sure, I'm not a, I'm not a, histor a philosophical historian, but I would argue it comes from precisely that sort of field. Everyone makes claims all knowledge systems make claims to truth. I mean, I, actually, the foundational philosophical question is, this is the truth, and I'm telling you the truth. And this is how you seek out the truth. This is how you find the truth. Critical is essentially saying that there are these dominant uh, understandings of what true is. And critical is essentially saying, well, why should we believe you? There is a greater need for evidence that I'd like to see. There's a, a greater need for reasoning that I'd like to see in order to believe in the truth what is believed to be common sense. I think critical job, critical thinking to begin with is essentially about uncommon sense. What is the uncommon sense involved in this particular claim? When it comes to geography, I think geography automatically lends itself to a critical approach because in the popular parlance, geography is about space, spatial relations, distances, places, spaces, and that sort of thing. And there, 
often the understanding of space is a metric space, like the distance between Aldwych and uh, Trafalgar Square is one kilometer or three quarters of a kilometer. And that's what it is. And it is immutable and there's nothing you can do about it. But when you think of it in terms of a gendered perception of space, a gendered interaction of space, uh, class-based interaction of space, uh, transportation-based uh, interaction of space, turns out that functionally the, that distance of three quarters of a kilometer means a lot more uh, than just the simple number that it's three quarters of a kilometer. So critical geography is essentially saying that why is the spatial organization the way it is, not just why, but also saying the dominant understandings of that spatial, what are the sorts of power relations that are inscribed within that spatial, uh, within those spatial relationships? Why are certain spaces considered to be monumental and others considered to be mundane? Why are certain spaces profane and the other ones are sacred? Those are the decisions that the society has collectively came upon. And critical geography is essentially an engagement with saying, well, tell me why. It's, it's, it's a very <laughs> elementary skeptical kind of a stance to it. But beyond that, it is also committed uh, in, in a more formal sense to a non-positivistic modes of seeking knowledge. Uh, it has a normative commitment to emancipatory politics. It is a normative commitment to human dignity. It has a normative commitment to more, uh, uh, more, uh, how shall we say, less destructive is the word, less destructive human non-human relations. And uh, critical geography is essentially an invitation and a provocation that what we have, what we consider to be reality in the real world is not just unacceptable, but is in fact outrageous. But that outrageousness or that critique should not just be, it's not, critical geography is not just animated by anger, and there is a lot of reason, reasons to be anger, but also by healthy utopianism. It is also animated by hope. So that we're looking at social justice perhaps in a different way than the way it's organized at the moment and how space is used and, and who, who the space is for. Who, who the space is for, precisely. Uh, I mean, if you, if, if you live in North America, for example, in North America, most cities are designed for the automobile. They're not designed for humans, they're designed for automobiles. So if they're designed for automobiles, if you don't have an automobile, presumably you don't have a right to the city, right? Uh, it seems like a very mundane sort of a thing. There's a square grid pattern, you know, but that ends up having consequences for certain groups of people to be able to access uh, the city. So social justice, uh, I mean, I come from a country called Pakistan where they have replicated the worst excesses of North American automobile dependent urban design. Now, and that has had absolutely disastrous consequences for women's mobility, because in the traditional city, which was close, uh, which, was, which was more densely populated, multifunctional, women had a lot more mobility to undertake daily chores that they, that they could. Now, if you have an automobile dependent city, a woman has to learn to drive, has to be able to afford a, uh, an, an automobile, has to have the way without to put petrol in it, but in certain cultural contexts, also be able to negotiate all the sorts of cultural barriers that say, you can drive, you can go that much distance, you can go here, you can go there, and then the whole questions of safety and so on. So those are sort of illustrative of how spatial organization uh, can, can be extremely consequential for what is social justice and thinking of it in different and innovative ways of gender, intersectional, class, race, ethnicity uh, kinds of ways that even based upon your ethnicity or racial profile, there are certain spaces within London you'd, you'd walk in and everyone will turn around and look at you as if like the music stopped and like, why are you here? <laughs> sort of so those are the sorts of difficult questions that Critical geography provokes people to engage with. Well, I'm glad I started with the most difficult question first. <laughs> Everything else is easy now. <laughs> Piece of cake from here on. <laughs> I'd like to ask you about what shaped your, your thinking, because you've had an interesting career path. And when I was looking at your bio, you, you started in the USA with your undergraduate studies. Your BA was from Middlebury College in, in USA. Um, and when I, I, I did Google this, I Googled geography education in the USA. Honestly, the first entry is, why are US students bad at geography? You're obviously not. So you must have gone through a different experience from this, which is the first hit on 
on Google. So how did you get to where you are and, and what shaped your thinking? Well, I think I'd like to comment on why U.S. students are bad in geography in the first instance and why geography is such a stepchild within U.S. higher education. And I think a lot of it has to do is somewhat coincidental. In 1948, uh, Harvard University, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of U.S. higher education, got rid of its geography department. Mm -hmm. And within the nine, within the span of 10, 20 years, practically all elite universities in the United States ended up getting rid of their geography departments. Not for any particular reason, but more importantly, you know, administrative, bad behavior, dysfunctional departments, so on and so forth, they got rid of them. And with the result that geography does not have the sort of prestige, if you will, within higher education that it tends to enjoy here in the United Kingdom. So that's, that's one. But in terms of my own trajectory, uh, when I went to uh, the United States for an undergraduate, that was the peak of the neoliberal revolution, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, late 1980s. And every one of my, because you see, when I was growing up, uh, when I was a little child in the 1970s, uh, people would say, oh, uh, if, if, if your kid is like really useless, like can't go to the civil service, can't be a doctor, can't be an engineer, can't be, you know, can't even good enough to go to the military, they'd send him to a bank because that's where they parked all the <laughs> kids who couldn't do anything. <laughs> now in the 1980s, with investment banking, people started making stupendous amounts of money and all of my colleagues wanted to study economics and eventually an MBA and join the financial services and make lots of money. And that seemed very boring to me at the time. <laughs> So I tried my hand at political science. I thought it was too boring. I tried my hand at computer computer science. I thought it was like teaching a deaf, dumb, and blind kid how to write an opera or sing an opera. It seemed a little boring. So I went with geography. Uh, and I didn't realize the full import of what I had done because after I graduated from Middlebury, I went back to Pakistan and started working in the development sector. And for the first time, I recognized that I think differently from any economist, anthropologist, sociologist, uh, um, any other social scientist, because I am interested in space and spatial relations. Why do people live where they live? And how do humans and the environment, the natural environment, interact with each other to create the sort of configuration of uh, situations that we see? Over a period of time, what I have learned is that most of the challenges, the big global challenges today that we think about are climate change, right? I mean, name me another discipline where the physical science and the human sociological, human impacts of it and human interactions with it are brought together in, under the same umbrella, except geography. So I... Uh, so having recognized that, I went back for a master's thinking that, you know, that was going to be the terminal degree, went on to do a PhD. And uh, I just find it absolutely fascinating to be in a department where someone is doing remote sensing and algorithms, another person is doing biogeography, another person is doing uh, process geomorphology, a third person is doing uh, para paraglacial geomorphology, one person is a gender in the city, another person is doing... Uh, uh, historical geography. So, and all of these are sort of stories about the human condition, right? I mean, we humans don't live in, a, I said, we live with each other, but we also live with the trees. We also live with the rivers. We also live with the air. We also live with the uh, other animals. And uh, it's, it's a discipline that has allowed me to uh, keep tabs on all of those stories emerging from all of these wonderful perspectives and be amongst a community of scholars where nothing is strange and nothing is uh, off the table. I think that's right. I think the economists have already forgotten the intergovernment panel on climate change. I think <laughs> code red for humanity and now they're talking growth again, um, but ignoring the the issues of climate change, which I do want to come on to because that those papers that you've written that I've been reading are absolutely fascinating. I, but I just want to ask you one more. This was a difficult question for me, probably easy for you. But you talk about how when you started, you were conceptually closer to structuralism. Yes. And uh, at the beginning of your career. And, and you in part started to explain this. But now you find yourself more attracted to post-structuralism. So I started to read about structuralism and post-structuralism. And, and then my brain hurts. So I thought I'd ask you to explain 
that movement and how you could uh, how you could explain it to a bare, very little brain like myself. No, no, no. <laughs> you underestimate yourself. But uh, I think when I started with structuralism, it was a it was in the long tradition of historical materialism in the Marxist tradition, which was really and a long philosophical tradition within the Western uh, philosophy. Uh, really, Hegelian historical materialism, which Marx uh, basically uh, capitalized on. I don't. I can't say that I necessarily identified myself as a Marxist at the time, and I don't. I probably still don't. My reading is not deep enough. My understanding is not strong enough to declare myself aligned with this. I mean, I certainly have sympathies with that uh, tradition. I certainly sympathetically read and deploy the insights, but I, I. I I'm just not clever enough to be a Marxist, shall we say, <laughs> for now, <laughs> or not well-read enough. But what I will say is that I was interested in how social structures, power structures, uh, in a more secular sense, in a more Catholic sense, than the than the capitalist system necessarily as the only one uh, that needs to be made the center of attention. I wanted to talk about multiple ones. But along the way, the post-structuralist insight that language is not an inert medium for conveyance of meaning. We, as they say, before you, under, before you live the world, you have to imagine it. And the only way you can imagine it is through a language, right? You cannot, you, you're tied to the whatever language you know or the languages you know. It is only through that that you can exercise your imagination. And then language itself is not an inert medium for conveyance of meaning. It by itself has no, uh, political valence or anything like that. Post-structuralism is, is an insight that it is language is not just an inert medium for, for conveyance of meaning or understanding the world, but rather of constructing meaning. Uh, the Thames, is it a drain? Is it a ecosystem? Is it a, is it a center of English historical imaginary, English identity? Is it a uh, river? Is it a leisure space? I mean, how you define that question in, in, in language, if you will, is not separate from what you end up doing to the Thames, what, what the actual material reality of Thames ends up being, right? Is the city a place for labor and production of value? Or is it a place for cultural satisfaction? Should they be promenades everywhere? I mean, how you answer the question ends up having a material consequences for what the city ends up being. So my my allegiance to or move towards post-structuralism was recognizing all of these factors that material by itself, it's, it's like a symbiotic relationship. It's not just the material conditions as historical materialism would argue end up dictating the vocabulary. It's both are in a sort of a dynamic relationship. If, if I put that simply then, does it become a, a, a tool for analysis? Of course it does. I mean, uh, I work with this uh, river, with, with this little uh, urban stream in Pakistan, in Rawalpindi Islamabad area. Everyone calls it a Nala. Nala in the Urdu language means a drain. Which is a uh, which is a which is a masculine of nali, which is the sewage drain in 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 urban areas. So they call it a nala, and the nala ends up having a being being uh, being treated as a drain, and hence all the solid waste and liquid waste and you know whatever gets thrown in there. And today it is like a sewer, right? I mean, most urban streams in the global south are sewers. I have had people of the Rawalpindi Development Authority start spitting angry with me. If I say it's not a Nala, it's a river. They're like, no, it's not a river. It's, it's a Nala. Like, what is it? Lay by itself in the local language means a river. How can you say river drain? That's absurd. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Oh, no, no, no. But what does it matter? You're getting into semantics. And it's like, okay, fine. So let's call the Indus, Indus Nala. And then they get really shocked. How dare you? Because Indus is ours, Indus is our pride, Indus is our civilization, and you call it a Nala. Well, then why do you call it an urban stream a Nala? Now, on the one hand, it may sound like completely frivolous, you know, uh, mental gymnastics going on, but uh, but I believe in in terms of frames of analysis, how in policy documents, how in uh, analytical registers, how in engineering terms, 
different places spaces are defined i mean defining vast swaths of territory which we now understand to be extremely ecologically i mean you call a wetland a wetland or a swamp you thought of it as a swamp for the past 200 years and look what you did to them they are not they're not there you can think of a scrubland as an ecosystem or you can think of it as a wasteland if you think of it as a wasteland then there are things that you do which make it a wasteland <laughs> so these are not separate conversations or separate uh, notions you're mentioning there pakistan and and the way that you've made me look at this differently through your readings i think is fascinating there's a number of papers and, and you were a technical advisor to a report that looked at the experience of climate and social change. Mm -hmm. This was among rural communities in some disaster prone areas. Um, you've, you've written, like many other, well at least the report wrote, like many other countries in the developing world, Pakistan is experiencing the impact of climate change. At the same time is undergoing, undergoing a socio-economic transition a combination which poses significant challenges, particularly for vulnerable populations. What I really liked was the voice that you gave to those vulnerable populations in the work that you were doing. Um, that was in 2015 when that report came out and uh, it, we only just have to look at the news um, with the flooding in Pakistan. One in seven people in the country have been impacted by that, those floods. That's like, I think half the population of the UK. Mm -hmm. What what moved you to write about that particular area? You know, Pakistan is a fascinating country. When I was doing my PhD back in the late 90s, in the entire Anglo-American geography, there was one person who had done any sort of social, scientific, political, ecological kind of research in Pakistan. Typically in the popular parlance, uh, Pakistan is associated with terrorism, nuclear weapons. Those are the two things. And if you're not talking about nukes and you're not talking about terrorism, then no one's interested. But it's also home to 220 million country, or people. I mean, there's like, it's a vast country, three times, twice, twice or three times the size of the United Kingdom. So there's a story to be told there, right? I mean, what, what is the point of academia? Ultimately, academia gives legitimacy to the knowledge that has been created out there. All through my PhDs, um, PhD years, I was uh, kind of getting what moved me to write about this area I'm just trying to explain to you. So, well, let me let me put it this way. Um, because I'm from there and it was fascinating to me. I mean, there were things that I had learned and to be able to, with its ethnic diversity, with its environmental challenges, with its uh, uh, it just it just it just seemed to me intellectually interesting and also somewhat of my own um, desire to generate knowledge about where I'm from. Mm. It is interesting how people perceive place and space differently. I've done some work with students before where we've I've asked them to imagine um, Persia mm -hmm. and conjure up the images, mm -hmm. and then ask them to imagine Iran and conjure up the images. Mm -hmm. And it's the same place, mm -hmm. but the images are entirely different. Completely. So it's, it's interesting what you've said about Pakistan. Where do we, I wonder where we get those images from and why, why just them? It, it seems from talking to people, that it's a beautiful country, but we don't often get that as the picture, as you say. Well, every square centimeter of this planet is beautiful. I mean, there's no such thing as an ugly country. All countries are beautiful. All <laughs> a centimeter of this uh, planet is. I mean, I was sitting on this uh, on this mountaintop in Nakhchivan in Azerbaijan, and I thought I had that epiphany. It's like every square centimeter of this planet is beautiful. It's only us human who, humans and our actions that make some places ugly and others not so. Uh, I think again, it brings us back to the question of post-structuralism, right? Eventually, Persia and Iran, their words. But those words have a whole set of history and uh, emotions attached to them. And hence the images that they evoke amongst your students are obviously very different. Pakistan, the way it was produced in the, in the global imaginary has been very deeply problematic. Uh, it has been, it has been uh, uh, produced as an Islamic Republic, 
uh, it has been produced as a uh, repository of mullahs and very angry people who are trying to get into trouble, oppression of women. And, you know, there's some truth to all of those. I mean, are they violent people? And yes, there are. They are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> are there injustices perpetrated against women? Absolutely, there are very, 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 very problematic gender relations that, that need to be condemned and negotiated and, and, and talked about. Uh, but there's a lot more going on. And uh, I take pride in having written almost two books on Pakistan without mentioning two words, Islam or the army. I managed to do that. And people are like, how could you write a book about Pakistan without mentioning Islam and army? I was like, if you see any deficiency in the explanation, then that's fine. That if you say that I'm trying to explain something, if only I had brought in Islam and that would explain why flood management happens the way it does or why water management happens the way, why the politics work out, then that's fine. But if I'm able to give you a perfectly good explanation, a story about a country of that size without evoking those two tropes, then it's possible, right? <laughs> <laughs> the GEO's Geography Quality Marks are prestigious awards which recognise, reward and promote quality and progress in geography leadership, curriculum development and learning and teaching in schools. A powerful process of self-evaluation and reflection, the frameworks incorporate the key messages of the 2019 Education Inspection Framework, supporting schools to develop a curriculum with high quality intent, implementation and impact. As a school working towards the award, you'll receive access to support, guidance and exemplification of quality geography through our webinars and online portal, and assessment and detailed feedback on your submission so that you know where to focus your next steps. You'll also become part of our international network of over 1,500 Geography Quality Mark schools. For further information or to register for the 2023 cohort, please go to our website at geography.org.uk. I want to ask you a little bit now about the flooding. It might be interesting, I think, first of all, if you could give us a bit of a, a backstory mm -hmm. of, uh, of why the area is prone to flooding. What, and and it, it has been managed for a long time. So what's, what's the history of the management? Before we start talking about the people, which I think is fascinating, and just, just a background of the, the physical. Well, right up till the 1990s, the government's approach towards flood, riverine floods, I'm talking. Riverine floods was that they must not hurt the infrastructure. Now, bear in mind that Indus is one of the most heavily engineered river basins in the world, right? With about three major dams, uh, multiple smaller dams, 23 major uh, virages with canal colonies, about uh, 70 to 80% of its water is, uh, is uh, diverted for irrigation purposes. So it's a completely humanly engineered system. And the flood management historically had always been, and all infrastructure has a safe design capacity, right? That this infrastructure can, withhold, can face up to this many cubic meters of water or cubic feet per second of water flowing through it. And if it exceeds that capacity, the structure is gonna go. Now, the entire flood management system in Pakistan, right up to the 1990s, and perhaps even today, to be honest with you, has been about accepting losses and, uh, and protecting the infrastructure. That's priority number one. The dam cannot be compromised. The barrage cannot be compromised. It is only the 1990s that they started thinking, oh, oops, okay, well, maybe we also need to pay attention to the people and perhaps protecting the people. But then again, protecting the people has always been trumped by the need to protect the infrastructure. And sometimes the infrastructure ends up playing a, a adversarial, a negative role. If it's a choice between infrastructure and people, the state has always gone for the infrastructure. And increasingly, I think climate change is telling us that the kind of price that the people are paying in order to protect it, first of all, your infrastructure is dysfunctional when it comes to uh, protecting the people. Uh, and I think that that's the sort of balance or compromise that the state is having difficulty negotiating at the moment. So historically, for example, almost all moderate, even up to high level floods were almost never caused by physical inundation of the water breaking through a levee. A levee has never been broken in Pakistan by the flood uh, wave. They're invariably breached by the Pakistan army engineers authorized by the irrigation department to blow up the right bank of the levees upstream 
of the virages once the safe design capacities of those virages is exceeded. That's the only way it has ever happened. And there are 23 designated inundation zones which are well known, which are invariably inundated in the event of a flood. That was the case until 2010. Now, this particular flood is a weird one, in because this is not a riverine flood. It's a riverine flood in the north, in the extremely north, mountainous north. But in the south, in Sin, it is, uh, it is because of extreme amounts of rain where you had a lot of inundation, lots of rain dumped in there. And then that water, the, the natural drainage of the water is disrupted by the levees, which are supposed to keep the water in the river, in the river and not let it out there. Onto. So the water that wants to go back into the river can't get back into the river because you've built a wall to keep the water from the other side to getting to where the inundation is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you explained that because I was, I was reading a newspaper article about this and I couldn't understand why it was going to take so long for the water to drain away. But that's because I haven't got anywhere to go. Exactly. I mean, there's a wall. Uh, for example, uh, they built this right bank outfall drain on the right bank of the, of the Indus, which basically runs the entire length of the Indus River in Sindh province. It's like, a, it's, it's like a wall. It's like a good 20 foot high wall, a drain that is supposed to carry all the toxic waste from all the sugar mills and agricultural effluents and everything else. It's like nasty, nasty water that, that it's carrying along the Indus to be eventually completed and thrown into the sea. Oh, that's nice. But, <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, it's that particular infrastructure that is keeping a lot of these areas inundated so many weeks after the rains have taken place. Well, I've learned something already. The other thing that I learned, but it, this was fascinating too, because the news that we get often it lumps all sufferers from a disaster into, into a bit of a homogeneous group. You see them and, and it's, it's awful, but they're, they're, all, they're all suffering the same. Mm. Um, and then you'd quite often in textbooks, the data's quantitative. It's just numbers rather than, rather than getting the stories of people mm -hmm. and, and real lived lives. And what you've done is is dug further into this and found that there's a significant difference in terms of vulnerability mm -hmm. between different groups and between genders, which I thought was fascinating. Oh, absolutely. You see, these people have been living with floods for thousands of years. I mean, there's a cultural memory of it. It's not like they've lived for thousands. I mean, they have a cultural memory of what floods are. So if you go into Southern Punjab, Central Punjab, Sindh, what you'd find is that most people would have their houses built on a platform, about five, six, seven feet high platform based upon the historic understanding of floods. I went to this one village where they had, uh, they showed me up on a tree that there's like up on the tree and it was perfectly a nice weather and everything in early June. And it's like, there's like these bedding and utensils and you know some basic essentials up on a tree. It's like, what the heck are they doing up on the tree? It's like, well, in case there's a flood, we don't lose everything. So that's our backup up there. And that's where it stays uh, during the flood season. People are used to what needs to be done. Now, the thing with the disaster that is unfolding at the moment in Pakistan was, is, is much worse than anything that happened with the inundation. What's happening is malaria, dysentery, cholera, all of those things are breaking out and killing people in vast numbers. And there, the nutritional status of women, they're ability to access nutrition is, is a big issue. Uh, differentially, as I have documented many, many times that uh, uh, women's nutrition status is not as good, children's nutrition status is not as good, and therefore their ability to negotiate the stresses that come with displacement in a flood uh, situation or all the diseases that break out in a flood situation uh, are problematic. Uh, women's mobility is a big issue as a result of which their ability to evacuate, their ability to take decisions to protect their families. Uh, also bear in mind, women are also in charge of taking care of the animals. And in South Asia, no one is going anywhere without their animals in rural South Asia. I mean, it's, it's kind of like uh, for us, every time if there's an emergency, if there's a fire, first thing you want to go for is your smartphone. Even if you're dying, you want to have, make sure that you have your phone with you. I mean, you can imagine in an emergency, Come what may, my, my smartphone and my, uh, and my laptop is coming with me, even if it's an airplane crashing or something. <laughs> it's just the same story with those people, that the animals are the most important. Women are the ones who take care of them. So 
there are issues with early warning. Uh, most women speak vernacular language, their educational le uh, levels are not that good. So their ability to understand warning messages, their ability to respond to uh, warning messages is much more limited. Uh, in a patriarchal society, their ability to access relief services, typically dispensed by men, uh, is, is problematic. So, this, and of course, class and ethnicity-based problems are always there. Your, your ability to, well, if it's, 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 it's flood season or warning has come, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to leave, whereas most people don't have cars and they can't go anywhere, so there is a problem there. So a whole set of things, you know, if uh, increasingly we're probably going to expect more cyclones in Karachi on, on, the, on, the, on the south coast of uh, Pakistan and climate change. So the relevant model all over the world has been if there's a cyclone coming and it's a category three or four or hurricane, you, you get out of the way. Well, how do you get out of the way if you don't have a motor vehicle, if you don't have the infrastructure? So differential, we, we saw it in the case of Hurricane Katrina and we're seeing the same sorts of uh, axes of vulnerability in Pakistan. So to, to affect some improvements in the situation, to, to support these people, we need to understand their position better. Is that, is that what the Vulnerability and Capability Index is, is for? Indeed. You see, what does the state or society want data on, right? I mean, ultimately, states are data states. They like to have data about you. They have a census data. They want to know if you have a radio, if you have a television, how much is your income, how old are you, so on and so forth. Those are the sorts of conversations. In South Asia, one of the most important things for the state to have information on was how much productivity is going on so that they can levy taxes on them, right? That's the 150-year-old model of the revenue department of the Indian Civil Service, right? <laughs> so you want to know how much you have so that how much of it we can take away sort of is the state's idea. But if we flip that model on its head and say the state is not just an extractive uh, institution. Uh, and I would argue that most of, in most of the rest of the world, the state does end up being, well, we want to know how much you earn so that we know how much to tax you, right? That's the whole point of collecting data. And if you're going to die, how much you're going to have to spend on you to take you to the hospital or, you know, social service, uh, social protection, what have you. So the submission is that with vulnerability index that uh, that I suggested, and there are many others out there, and this is not necessarily the best one out there, maybe there are better ones for different contexts, but the idea of monitoring vulnerability and realizing which places are capable of responding to what, how might they be more vulnerable to the environmental stresses that are, that are, that, that are already there and are going to be worse in the future. And if you have that sort of a map, you can direct your relief efforts and reconstruction efforts towards the most vulnerable. I mean, there's a long story about disaster relief and recovery from all over the world, not just Pakistan. Some places get so much relief that they end up burning the food and supply and rations that are there because they don't know what to do. There was this American pilot during the 2005 uh, Kashmir earthquake. He said, you know, do you have any map of us telling us where to take the stuff? I mean, there's like 70 tons of supplies sitting on Islamabad airport and we don't know where to take them because we don't know where to go, <laughs> right? So if the state already or other institutions already pulled that information and knew what the vulnerability profiles are, then scarce relief supplies and reconstruction help can be directed towards people who need it most. Unfortunately, ends up being people who need it the least end up getting the most because it's the most, most visible and have the most power. I worked with an organization when I was at Geographical Association called Map Action, and they were a GIS-based group. And that's their role was to, to identify where roads had, uh, had been uh, washed away or, or uh, covered by avalanches or, or landslides because of um, earthquakes to make sure that the material got to where it should do. So I, I understand the, the, the difficulties and the problems there. You've also identified, though, that that this sort of quantitative measure doesn't necessarily identify the most vulnerable without taking a more qualitative approach. Is that right? That is correct. You see, I in a, we live in a world where numbers have a legitimacy that they don't deserve, right? You throw a number at someone, it somehow sounds true, 
<laughs> even if there's complete garbage behind it. I mean, that's just the world we live in, right? And vulnerability has been a notoriously elusive concept to encapsulate in, a, in, in numbers. And I said, well, let's give it a go. I mean, ultimately the universe of drivers of vulnerability is infinite depending upon the context. So let's try and five, 10, 12 variables that could explain the maximum variance in vulnerability based upon the literature, experience, empirical studies and everything, had it peer reviewed and everything in a South Asian context. But the submission is, and sometimes numbers can be very dangerous as well. They're like a loaded gun, right? I mean, we know about benefit cost analysis. You can justify any stupid idea by getting the discount rate and coming up with a positive benefit to cost ratio, right? So numbers are also very dangerous. So people are very reluctant to go there. But equally, if you can easy to uh, access, easy to understand, comparative, the number by itself doesn't mean anything. Number only means something in comparison to the other, right? So in comparison to the other, it ends up giving you the relief, the sort of landscape of vulnerability out there. So once it's given you that, if you are so inclined to be progressive about it and say, well, what do we do about it outside of a disaster context, outside of an immediate relief and recovery context, then you have, if you have qualitative information, then you know precisely why they are vulnerable. Is it lack of, they don't have mobile phones, they don't have a tower over there by which they can communicate their needs, by, by virtue of they can receive warning signals, then that's what you need to do. If it is diversification of livelihoods, then that's something that needs to be addressed. If it's about education, then what is what, what are the big drivers? You can look under the hood and find out what is driving the high vulnerability numbers. So you found there was a, a difference between gender, particularly, but also a difference between um, different types of, of, of organizations, be, between the, the agro-pastoralists and the fishing villages. Um, when, if you'd looked at it qualitatively, uh, quantitatively, they'd have all looked the same. They're actually, even the different ways of organizing the economy mm -hmm. meant that some groups were more vulnerable than others, but the, the women particularly as well. Oh, absolutely. Because you see, historically, certainly in the past couple of hundred years, agriculturists have been the favored community of the state because agriculturists are settled, you know exactly where they are, you know exactly how to <laughs> tax them. So the colonial administration liked them. The contemporary post-colonial administration really likes them. And they are the beneficiaries of states' attention, infrastructure, and all of that. The agro-pastoralists were always problematic. They don't have a steady address. They can't be found. They, they, they're always, they, there's a certain cultural stigma against them. They don't get access to services. They don't get access to education, medical health, and so on. And fisher communities similarly, because ultimately uh, Indus Basin historically was a predominantly agro-pastoralist ecosystem, agro-ecosystem, right? Uh, there was just uh, only along the main rivers, just on a very narrow strip, could you have sedentary agriculture if the groundwater was high enough and if there was uh, uh, enough of a relief for you to get uh, inundation irrigation. So that was changed through the massive uh, British colonial uh, social and engineering experiment of building the canal colonies. And the settlement of the agro-pastoralists, some agro-pastoralists were settled down and made into sedentary farmers. So these communities at the margins of states' attention in the, in, in the first instance. And I think that that's one of the biggest drivers, if you will. Uh, the water goes to the agriculturists, doesn't leave enough water, and what water is left, it is too polluted for there to be enough fish for the fisher communities to make a living. Uh, Agro-pastoralists do not get access through closed off land that they were able to traverse historically or be able to access the water that they were able to get access to historically through customary law for the animals and for themselves. So they end up being, uh, and then they do not interact with the state. They don't have ID cards. They do not have state's recognition to say, oh, I'm sorry, you suffered. Hey, some relief aid for you to take care of yourself. Oh, I'm sorry that your that your wife is having a child. Come to the basic health unit and get medical help for those sorts of procedures. They don't get that. Those sorts of facilities. It, gosh, it's so complicated because it's not just the climate change. It's not, but it's this this whole socio-economic change that's going on at the same time. 
So it, it produces a multitude of different issues and the complexity of things to, to have to solve. Um, what were the general recommendations at the end of all this of the study for where to go next? Well, there were, there were a number of uh, recommendations, but I got to tell you this anecdote. While we were doing field research for this particular report, uh, this guy thought we didn't speak Sindhi. One of our, uh, most of our, my team members did speak Sindhi. So he said to uh, our translator, uh, hey, mate, what are you doing with these guys? He's like, well, I'm just doing a translation. He's like, you know, all they're going to do is keep talking climate change and nothing's going to happen. You're wasting your time. Carry on. And I recognized because the people know about climate change because they have all of these NGOs, researchers, and everyone else coming into the community and talking about climate change. And most of the time they say, are you guys insane? Like, what are you smoking? And whatever you're smoking, why aren't you sharing? Have you seen the lives that we are living right now? Have you seen the level of malnutrition that is here right now? Are you seeing the level of unemployment that is here right now? Are you seeing the lack of water that is happening right now? Did you hear about the flood that happened last, last year and all the damage that, that happened to us? Do you see the misery that we are living in? Women, when they say, oh, yeah, I've heard that men folk eat eggs every once in a while. I've never had one. Now make the case to that woman. I mean, this friend of mine, he went to this uh, district health uh, uh, hospital in, uh, in Mithi, in Tharpathar. And he went to the, uh, to the maternity ward and he looked at the profiles of the women who were giving birth. They had a hemoglobin level of four. It's supposed to be 12. These women, are, so make a case to those women, oh, you should be worried about climate change. So obviously they're very contemptuous that as if all is well right now and somehow climate change is gonna destroy us. This is an unbearable present that people are living in. You know, there's a, there's a strong streak within Western thinking of futurism. What is gonna happen in the future? As if what is happening today, right now, here or yesterday is okay. <laughs> so the submission is that the climate challenge is again a, a wake-up call amongst many others for us to pay attention to how we have become, have, how we have produced ourselves here and now and since yesterday is problematic, is dysfunctional. And it is already millions, if not billions of people are paying a terrible price and living miserable lives as a result of the trajectory that we've adopted. Climate change will make it worse. But people say, what, how much worse can it be? I mean, I asked this one person, uh, but this was back in 2002. I was like, you know, are you afraid of other major floods? Like, no, I'm not afraid. Like, why? He's like, well, I've lost my wife and child in the last flood. What else can I lose? Bring it my way. I don't care. That's just shocking, isn't it? Shocking for you to Unspeakable. Say. It is unspeakable, which is why I say that's the critical insight. What is here and now is not just unacceptable or worrying. It is outrageous. So where do we go from here? What, what is next for these people? I think what is next for these people is not separate from what is next for, for us. We are not separate from them and their problems are not separate from what we are and who we are and what we do. I think that in the, in, in, in the first instance, and I've, and I've stressed it in some of my writings as well, uh, if we, if, we, if we limit us, I mean, I can get into a bigger political economic kind of a discussion, which I think may not be very useful uh, for, for, for the audience. Maybe we should stick to water for now. <laughs> uh, there is a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a colleague of mine, uh, Marcus Taylor at Queen's University in Canada, and he wrote this book, Political Ecology of Adaptation. And he says the whole adaptation enterprise is premised upon the, the, the ambition that how can we change so that we don't have to change, right? Like we want to have a mass production, mass consumption society. We want to have this luxurious lifestyle of the rich and famous in the global North. And how, what do we have to do to adapt to climate change so that we can continue to be, to have the lifestyle that got us where we are in the first place. That's a sort of paradoxical thinking within the IPCC and others adaptation view that by and by. With regard to water, I think that there's a very rich vein of knowledge, 
uh, experiential knowledge, cultural knowledge about water uh, that can very usefully intersect with the modern knowledge about water to facilitate negotiation of these extreme events that are going to happen, that are happening and can happen into the future. Unfortunately, the only arbiter of legitimate knowledge for the Pakistani water managers is the what I have called colonial knowledge, uh, colonial science knowledge of Indus is a resource. It's not a god, which it is to many people. It is not the place where Saint Khizr lived. Khwaja Khizr is the patron saint of uh, rivers. That's not, that's not the abode of that patron saint. It is not an ecosystem. It is not the Sainsbury's of the fisher folk because that's where they go shopping, right? <laughs> when they go grocery shopping, that's, they get everything from there. But it is just a resource. It's just a giant plumbing system where water gets diverted here, there, these abstractions. When I say have four cubic meters of water, John, I like you, I let you have three cubic meters of water. What does that mean? It means absolutely nothing. When I say, oh, you can have an hour long shower or you can go to a, go, go to a hot tub or something. Now that makes sense. Three cubic meters doesn't mean anything, mm. right? As a, as a colleague, uh, Jamie Linton uh, has said, water in its form as H2O, which is what we think it is, doesn't exist. H2O does not exist because outside of the rarefied confines of a laboratory, as soon as it leaves the rarefied confines of the laboratory, H2O being a, uh, H2O being a, being a universal solvent bonds with other minerals. And when I was a child, there was always a conversation about, oh, the water in Peshawar is very good for your health. Peshawar in Karachi is very bad, makes your hair fall off and stuff. Water from there is, and I'm sure you had these conversations perhaps in this country as well with our, about different places. Oh, I'm not going to go there. The water very bad for your health. No, sir. Water very healthy. So there's a whole layers of experience, cultural meaning, spiritual meaning, functional meaning, health, nutrition that is associated with water. And that is not that separate from the actual chemical compositions of those waters, right? So toilet water is very different from my bottled water because they are functionally different. Their chemical composition is different. And people viscerally know that. So bringing in that wealth of knowledge we've all, always had into the rarefied halls of academic and research conversations to find solutions collectively to where we need to go. Because unless we get rid of our arrogance as modern scientists and hydrologists and geomorphologists, I'm afraid that we're in very serious trouble. It does bring me back to the first or, or second question you asked. I asked about critical geography because we're now being critical about the political system that drives us for growth as being the determining for what's a success and global growth for what's a success rather than looking at global commons and looking at protecting, protecting things that are outside that, um, that way of, of, of creating growth. We're looking at, at, at perhaps attempts to manage which won't lead to such dramatic growth. I've not expressed that particularly well, but I think we're looking at a, at a different way of, of organizing our political systems. But see, that, that different way is not that weird. I mean, if you had said to someone 80, 90 years ago, oh, yeah, 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 economic growth is very important and that should be the sole purpose of an economy, they would have said, like, are you insane? <laughs> like, what is that? I mean, why? Right? I mean, it wasn't until, uh, I mean, it wasn't, I, I suspect it wasn't until the 70s and the 80s, 80s more so, that growth became the center point of an economy's performance. Before that, there were a whole set of other metrics and things that you wanted to talk about, but the growth is a different one. I mean, growth didn't happen before you came up with GDP. When did you come up with the GDP as a, as, as a reference? What is it, said 30s or thereabouts? So it's a very new concept. It's a very new concept. And I think it is very, it is very unfortunate. It is very unfortunate. It is very dangerous, uh, this, 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 this uh, focus on, on, on growth, because you can have growth. I mean, 
heck, we've had lots of growth in the in the in in the coffers of the of the really rich people through the through the COVID years, uh, the two years that we had the COVID. The bigger issue that everyone here in Britain is certainly talking about, and everyone else in the world is talking about, is what equity and justice. I mean, people outside of London saying, "Oh, so you're having growth? We haven't seen any. We haven't seen any in 20 years. Mm -hmm. Where is this growth? <laughs> Why aren't we benefiting?" And at the at the at the end, in the end, there is this and the same thing happening in small town USA outside of New York, San Francisco, Boston, these sorts of places. People, people, people are alienated. People are like you, bankers, you academics, you smart people. You are telling us all of these things that if we do these things, we will have a, we will have a safe life. We'll have a prosperous life. And turns out that our lives are a mess. We're not seeing this growth. We are not seeing all of these the results of all of these promises. So, well, then there's the dog whistle. Well, it must be the Muslims' fault. Or it must be the immigrants' fault. It must be the something else's fault. And I'm afraid that we are exactly where we were in 1920s. 1922 was Mussolini marched on Rome. <laughs> we are at the same place in a certain state of the market economy and capitalism where it starts running out of steam, then it starts finding enemies, right? And these days, you know, Muslims and non-whites and this minority and that ethnicity and this group, it's all about enemies, right? It's It's... Everyone is trying to find ferret out some enemy that is to be blamed, and not these abstractions about growth, which have gotten us where we are at the moment. It's a delicate balance, I think, for teachers now. They, <clears throat> according to the DfE, teaching about political issues is an essential part of a broad and balanced curriculum. So they say that, but then they talk about um, forbidding the promotion of partisan political views. And I'm sure that there would be some people in government who could say that some of the views that we've talked about here are partisan political views. Is the Labour against growth? Is SNP against growth? Name me one political party within the parliament which is anti-growth. We just decried growth as a singular objective of an economy, right? If they can find me some MP in the House of Commons or in the House of Lords, who's anti-growth, then we could say, oh, okay, we are, sorry, we are partisan, we're calling names. <laughs> but turns out that this is the sort of a fall, I mean, when, 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 when what used to be uh, odious uh, right-wing to, to leftist uh, ideas in the 70s, become left-wing ideas <laughs> in what was considered beyond the pale to be right-wing ideas, then it's a, it's a, it's a, different, it's a, it's a different world. So I don't think we are being partisan at all because there is no partisanship about the ideas we're discussing. Everyone agrees that we need to have growth. Who says we don't need to have growth? When did the Labour Party call for a peasant revolution? Never. <laughs> 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 or anyone. We're just talking about the ideas, yeah, yeah. which are at the foundation of, of the state and society that we're living in at the moment. That might move us towards, um, I, th I think you're involved in this, decolonizing geography. The, uh, uh, you're one of the, the group that have been involved with the website, aren't you? Yes, I, I, I am associated. I mean, I'm not a most activist member, shall we say. I've just contributed a couple of articles to them and have some Twitter <laughs> yeah. conversations with them. So in terms of, of teaching now, and I'm, I'm looking at, oh, I'm thinking of teaching uh, children at um, a GCSE or A level level. What do you suggest that um, teachers should be thinking about? In, there, there are two parts of this question, because I think you've, you've given me an insight into Pakistan that I hadn't seen and people's lives and different stories. So there's that, but you've also talked about the, the global element, about us being, whatever happens there, the consequences are also here. So we have to look at the interconnectedness of the whole. Absolutely. I think that, uh, I think one I can think of is that there is this old environmentalist mantra, we are all in this together. Well, we're not riding the same class, right? If, if the world is a Titanic, everyone is not riding the same class. So when it sinks, I think some people have already paid the price and the others are probably going to find a lifeboat or two and uh, might be okay. So that's one sort of an insight. 
I think the other part is thinking about development in critical ways, how infrastructure, how human interventions into the environment, certainly in the hydrology, tend to have prices, tend to have a price, tend to have, tend to have costs. Who bears the costs and who gets to benefit is a fundamental question. They say there's always this uh, liberal idea of there's always a win-win situation. And when it's a win-win situation, the one who lost is what's for dinner, right? Two winners sit down in a win-win situation and eat the one who was not part of that equation. <laughs> so it's important, uh, I think, for, for teachers to ask students to think, again, critically about the claims that are being made. They, they read about claims through newspaper articles, through Twitter stories, through, or through Instagram, through Facebook, through whatever social media that they're using, through television. And it's always healthy to question, okay, who's benefiting? Is everyone benefiting? Because sadly, we live in a very deeply differentiated society. We are not equal. We're not equal. We're not equal by virtue of gender. We are not equal by virtue of buying capacity. We are not equal by many, many, along many, many metrics. And there, that conversation highlighting, well, who's the loser? Sometimes it's, okay, you know, you want to go in a certain direction. At least recognize what the costs are and who's paying it. And benefits are who gets most of it. Now, if we, if we now focus on Pakistan, because that's not quite where we started, but I think it'd be an interesting one to, to finish on. Where next for, for Pakistan? We've had these dreadful floods. We've got the water that's not going back. Who wins there? What's the, what's the way forward? See, my view, I mean, are you asking me realistically or are you asking me in terms of what should be? Oh, well. If we're critically thinking, we might as well look at both then. <laughs> okay, I mean, within the context, without asking for a uh, complete transformation of thinking and everything, I think that uh, instead of irrigation, the water managers need to prioritize drainage and early warning. Those are two, hands down, have to be the priority. And they need to get rid of this fetish with high cost infrastructure. The need is in Pakistan. The infrastructure is designed in Netherlands and is financed in Washington. That has been the trajectory of infrastructure development in Pakistan. Now, Netherlands has done what it has done because it's got boatloads of money, God knows from where. I mean, actually, let's not go there. <laughs> you do what they do. But I can promise you, one insight about floods is that we have learned as humanity, you fight floods, you will lose. If the Dutch tell you they have successfully fought off floods, wait, they're just delaying their ultimate defeat. Every scientist, hydrologist, geomorphologist in Netherlands will tell you we will lose. The later it is, more catastrophic it's going to be. Either we give back some of the country back to the sea where it belongs, if we want to live, or we keep engineering it, keep engineering it to the point where it will fail, and when it does, it's all over. It's the same sort of an attitude that the Pakistani engineers have, unfortunately. Second thing is, I think that we need more science than engineering. I think science, contemporary science, has some important insights to offer. We know a lot more, the interactions between water and sediments, for example. We know a lot more about water and ecology, for example. We know a lot more about what so-called swamps, which is also known as wetlands and their ecological flood control, uh, climate change kinds of roles. We know a lot more. It is time to displace civil engineers from a central role in water management and bring in some good science. And the social scientists, I can always make a plea, but social scientists are not as impressive as the scientists, I suppose. So I don't know if they can go there. Now, in terms of what's going to happen, um, I'm not very sanguine about the prospects for progressive change. I, uh, I think that the rural population has been hit so bad. I think it is unspeakable, the kind of catastrophe that is unfolding with malaria, dysentery. When you have a sick child at home and you're surrounded by inundated water, your capacity to do anything or to think of anything 
is very, very limited. Now, in the medium term, if there is a sea change and people get angry, then the state might do something different. But at the moment, I think 20 years ago, the Pakistani water managers did not want to even acknowledge my existence. And if they, or the, I'm, I'm not saying me personally, but the kind of thinking or the likes of me, they did not even want to acknowledge that I exist or I should exist. Or if they came across ideas or people like me, they're like, why are you even here? What legit, get up, we're not even listening to you. Today, after 20 years, I've reached a point where they absolutely abhor me. This is an improvement, which is a huge improvement. At least, you know, opposite of love is not hate, it's actually indifference. So now they've started hating me, which is a very positive development, <laughs> which means the ideas have gotten through and it has started threatening them. And one hopes that from indifference to hate to at some point we'll go towards sympathy, empathy, love, onwards. <laughs> well, <laughs> being pleased about being hated, that's a new one. <laughs> but at least it means you're being addressed, you're exactly. being, being recognised. I mean, hatred is a very strong emotion. It's almost as, as strong as love. And that means that you've been heard. And I think you have been heard today. That's been absolutely fascinating today. I've really enjoyed our chat. Um, is there anything else that I've not asked you that you'd like to say? Because otherwise, I've, I've just had a great time. I'd, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to just say thanks again for that was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Those were excellent questions, really hard ones. I think I may borrow some of those for my exams. <laughs> <laughs> what is critical geography? Discuss. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, John. All the best to you. <laughs>